A quick note before we get started. This is part three of our four-part series, which charts how China built one of the most advanced cyber warfare programs. You don't necessarily have to listen to these episodes in order, but you'll get a lot more out of it if you do. And now, on with the show. The following presentation is not suitable for young children. Listener discretion is advised. Brendan Cullen blinked and tried to stay awake. The 30-something federal investigator and former football player was sitting at an airport lounge at Saipan International Airport, the transportation hub that serves the island of about 43,000 people. Colin and his team had just flown 14 hours to get there. It was just past 4 a.m. and the airport was nearly deserted. Should be any minute now, Colin thought. Finally, an airplane pulled up to the terminal and dozens of passengers streamed out. Most of them were from China. Colin scanned the crowd. Suddenly, he spotted their target, Zhang Li, the $100 million software pirate and owner of Crack 99. If everything went according to plan, tomorrow he'd be in handcuffs. Zhang Li was a pudgy man in a Hawaiian shirt. He was also a young father and a devoted family man. In fact, Colin could see that Lee had brought a middle-aged woman and a young boy with him. Oh shit, Colin thought. He brought his mother-in-law and the kid? Colin quickly sent a text to his supervisor, Mike, letting him know that he'd had eyes on Lee. Mike was waiting in a parked car with his supervisor, assistant U.S. attorney for the District of Delaware, David Hall. Mike and Hall watched Zhang Li and his family exit the airport and board the bus. Mike and Hall followed the bus, which took Zhang Li and his family to their hotel, the Saipan World Resort, where more undercover agents were waiting. Those agents watched Zhang Li and his family enter the hotel and take their luggage up to the hotel room. Let's make sure he's put the bed, Mike said. By now it was past sunrise. Zhang Li and his family had just taken a red-eye flight. They figured that Li and his family would just take a nap. Nope. Soon, Hall got a phone call from one of the undercover agents. Zhang Li was on the move. He'd rented a Jeep and was driving it around the island. Colin and Mike took off after him. This wasn't part of the plan. Was Zhang Li having an undisclosed meeting? Maybe with Chinese intelligence? Was he planning to double-cross them? They knew so little about him. They followed Zhang Li's jeep through the beaches and hills and past the ruins left over from Saipan's World War II battle. Finally, Zhang Li turned onto a rural road. The agents followed, but a cow and two shirtless guys blocked their path. They lost him. Did Zhang Li notice their tail and shake them off? They didn't know. For now, there was nothing to do but wait for Zhang Li's call, if he hadn't already been spooked and hoped that their investigation hadn't gone up in flames. On this episode, software pirates, esoteric industrial software, undercover operations, and China's criminal hacking community. I'm Keith Corneluk, and you're listening to Modem Mischief. You're listening to Modem Mischief. In this series, we explore the darkest reaches of the internet, We'll take you into the minds of the world's most notorious hackers and the lives affected by them. We'll also show you places you won't find on Google and what goes on down there. 
This is the story of Crack 99 and part three of our series on Chinese hacking. Hey listeners, before we get back to this story, I just wanted to ask a small favor. If you're listening on a podcast platform that allows you to leave a rating or a review, it would be great if you did so. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere else you listen, leave us a five-star rating and a review. Your host and the rest of our team would greatly appreciate it. And now, let's go. Around noon, the missile blasts off from a launch site near Pyongyang. It's a Hwasong-17 ICBM with a 2,000-pound thermonuclear warhead. That's like 17 Hiroshima's. Once it enters Earth's orbit, it makes a massive arc towards the southwest. America has tons of satellites in orbit watching for these missiles. But here's the thing. The North Koreans have American satellite positioning software that tells them where all the satellites are. And so the launch of this missile has been timed so that it passes through the satellite network undetected. U.S. Pacific Command doesn't notice that a nuclear warhead is flying right at Honolulu. The people of Honolulu don't get text alerts from the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency warning them to take shelter. But that doesn't matter because Honolulu doesn't have fallout shelters anymore anyway. This is the 21st century, and the Cold War is over. The Hwasong-17 explodes about 1.5 kilometers above the city. In the streets below, the people look up at the mushroom cloud blossoming in the sky. Some try to call their loved ones. Some get out of their cars and crawl under them. Some parents push their kids into storm drains, but it's no use. The explosion and the fallout kill 158,000 people and injure another 170,000 more out of 350,000. That adds up to 94% of the population. Or at least, that's what happens in my simulation anyway. Cullen I, the software engineer. Take me back to the part where the missile avoids all the satellites. Cullen was sitting in a conference room inside a corporate park near Exton, Pennsylvania. This was the headquarters of Analytical Graphics Incorporated, a defense contractor that sold software to the Pentagon. The software engineer turned the slideshow back a few slides. Right, so that satellite positioning software I mentioned the North Koreans having, we make it. It's called Satellite Toolkit, or SDK. Theoretically, if a threat actor like North Korea got access to SDK, they could guide a missile through the gaps in our satellite network and hit Honolulu. And that's just one scenario. Imagine if China got a hold of it, or Iran, or Russia. And you're saying this software is being sold online for pennies on the dollar? The software engineer pulled up a website called Crack99. It was a jumbled mess of fluorescent colors and multiple fonts. At the top of the page was a message clearly written by someone whose first language wasn't English. Faced with so many customers, friends said to me, thank you very much. I feel that my duty and responsibility to all the friends provide an accurate, fast, and reliable service. We have already done. We'll provide that we will do better. Trust www.crack99.com, professional site. Then, the engineer pulled up Crack 99 sales page. There were thousands of software programs available. Here's Satellite Toolkit version 8.0. Normally it sells for 150 grand. On here, it's available for a thousand bucks to anyone. 
As a Homeland Security investigator, Cullen knew that there was a list of countries forbidden from purchasing software from companies like AGI. He also knew that so much of America's military and defense network ran on technology made by companies like AGI. If someone could figure out how to exploit the flaws in that software, it could be disastrous. So yeah, this seemed like a problem. Cullen's visit to AGI in December of 2009 started out as routine courtesy. He was there to brief AGI about the hazards of software theft and to solicit help for future investigations. Instead, this software engineer had just given Cullen his first big case in his new job. After starting in narcotics, Cullen recently transferred over to counterproliferation. In counterproliferations, it was his job to fight arms trafficking, weapon smuggling, and any other misuses of American technology, like someone stealing American military software and selling it online. Cullen was no expert in software or military tech, but he was learning quickly. Cullen informed his supervisor, Mike, about AGI's problem. Mike was bald, with scars covering his scalp from the many fights and mishaps while growing up in Boston. Mike had spent more than 10 years in counterproliferation, locking up arms dealers from places like Iran and South Africa. Mike agreed that the Crack 99 situation was a problem, and the two brought it to the man they hoped would prosecute the case, Assistant U.S. Attorney for the District of Delaware, David Hall. Like Mike, Hall was bald. He was a former naval intelligence officer who'd been a government prosecutor for more than 20 years. He was about to retire. During his retirement, he was already planning to write about his most unusual cases. Some reporter had already beaten him to the punch and written about his last big arrest of the Iranian arms dealer Amir Abedili. With Crack 99, Hall knew that he was sitting on a bookworthy case, but he also knew it'd be tricky to prosecute. The site's owner directed customers to contact them at an email address, china9981 at gmail.com. So either Crack99's owner was Chinese, or he was pretending to be. This made the case particularly urgent. Hall knew China was waging an ongoing cyber war against the United States, trying to steal as much of America's technology as possible. The exact sort of technology that was available on Crack99. Could Crack99 be affiliated with the Chinese government somehow? Maybe a Chinese government hacker had gone rogue and started selling his pilfered wares online. Or maybe Crack99's owner was just a civilian criminal. If so, the Chinese government was certainly turning a blind eye toward Crack99's activities. There was no way the Chinese government didn't know about it. Like in other authoritarian countries, the Chinese internet is heavily censored and monitored by tools with names like the Great Firewall. Hall knew that investigating this case could pit him against the Chinese government and possibly cause a diplomatic incident. Even if Crack99's owner had no affiliation with the government, China would still never willingly hand over one of its citizens. It was unlikely the Chinese government would even cooperate with the investigation. Hall's only real play was to try to lure the site's owner somewhere the United States had criminal jurisdiction. And the only way to do that was an undercover operation. So, the team brought in an undercover operative from the Defense Criminal Investigative Service named Robert. His last name's never been published. Robert's first move was to verify that Crack99 truly was selling stolen software. Since they already had a relationship with the Analytical Graphics Incorporated, the maker of the satellite toolkit and many other fine products, 
Robert decided to buy the version of STK listed on Crack 99 for 1000 bucks. Colin and Mike requisitioned an apartment that the Homeland Security Department kept in Philadelphia for use in undercover operations. They couldn't be contacting Crack 99 from a government IP address, after all. There, Robert sent an email to china9981 at gmail.com inquiring about purchasing the software. Soon, they had a very enthusiastic response. I will give you a registration document. This is perfect for sure. Trust from our services. The email was signed with a name, Zhang Li. This was a clue. They didn't know if Zhang Li was the name of Crack99's real owner or an alias. They didn't know if Zhang Li was one person or several people, but it was the first name they could attach to the website. Next, Zhang Li sent them instructions on how to pay for STK 8.0. They were to wire the money via Western Union to Chengdu, China. By now, it was almost certain that Crack99 was Chinese. There was also a document containing Zhang Li's resident ID number, along with that of a woman, Chen Yan Li. She would be receiving the money. But who was this woman? She had the same surname as Zhang. Was this his wife? Perhaps his sister? Another alias? Who knew? Colin and Robert drove to the nearest Western Union inside a grocery store and wired the money to Chengdu. They had no idea if they were actually going to receive the software or if they were about to be ripped off. But soon, Zhang Li replied with several links to an FTP site where Robert could download STK 8.0 along with detailed instructions for how to install it. AGI confirmed that it was authentic, even if it was missing a few components. This verified that Zhang Li was indeed selling stolen software on Crack99. But Hall needed more than one sale to build his case. So, Robert made another purchase. This time, he selected software called Cortis 2 version 9, which was made by the Altera Corporation. It's headquartered in San Jose, California, and specializes in semiconductors. Cortis 2 is a software program that creates programmable logic devices. The military uses it for communications, radar, and missile guidance. Normally, Cortis 2 is sold for tens of thousands of dollars. Robert purchased it for 340 bucks. After two sales, the agents still didn't know whether Lee was hacking and cracking these software programs himself or whether he was a middleman, so they came up with a test. Robert noticed that Zhang Li listed a software program called Hypersizer. Made by the Collier Research Corporation, Hypersizer performs stress tests on aircraft and spacecraft, yet another potential national security hazard. The latest version was Hypersizer 5.8. But Crack99 only listed Hypersizer 5.3. Robert emailed Zhang Li and asked if he could provide the latest version. He got another quick reply. Sorry, no 5.8. Another clue. Whoever Zhang Li was, they didn't appear to be an elite hacker capable of breaking into secure networks and stealing the latest software. Most likely, they had connections to other hackers who could do that. Even so, Zhang Li was happy to provide the investigators with Hypersizer 5.3, which retailed for $50,000, but the investigators bought it for $200. These three sales were enough to secure a search warrant for Zhang's email. Cullen brought the warrant to Google, which provided the investigators with access to the contents of Zhang Li's inbox. What they found shocked them. There were over 12,000 emails dating back to 2008, hundreds of messages a day all correspondence between Zhang Li and buyers around the globe. Li proved willing to sell to anyone anywhere in the world so long as they paid. 
About half of Lee's customers were in the US. More were from friendly countries like Germany, the UK, Canada, and Australia. But Colin also discovered several customers in countries that were forbidden from doing business with the US, like China, Syria, and Iran. Would the Chinese government be one of Zhang Li's customers? In one case, they discovered a sale to a man called Nasir, not his real name. He was using a Ukrainian IP address, but that was a proxy. Nasir was actually located in Syria, and he claimed to be working for the Syrian government. I'm looking to purchase software called Ansoft Simplorer. I attempted to purchase it from the vendor Ansys, but they said they can't sell to Syrians. They wouldn't even sell me the student version. Can you help me? Ansoft Simplorer was an engineering design software that could simulate the performance of electronic equipment, like that used in military hardware. For Hall, this was alarming. The United States has labeled Syria as a sponsor of terrorism since 1979. It supports many different terrorist organizations, like the Lebanese military group Hezbollah. During its war with Israel in 2006, just four years earlier, Hezbollah launched thousands of rockets at 12 Israeli towns, killing 43 civilians and 12 soldiers and injuring thousands more. Those particular rockets couldn't be aimed with any precision. They were just fired indiscriminately. Hall knew that someone like Nasir could funnel his stolen technology to the Syrian government, which could then give it to Hezbollah, which could use it to make its missiles and rockets even more effective. And those missiles could be used on Israelis or even American troops across the border in Iraq. And Nasir was just one example. Zhang Li had conducted more than 500 sales in 60 countries and counting. There was still much they didn't know. Where was Zhang Li getting his software? Was he involved with the Chinese government? Was he even a real person? But one thing was clear. American software was out in the wild. Zhang Li had to be stopped before people got hurt. A few weeks later in late 2010, Robert, the undercover agent, was sitting in the Philadelphia safe house when he pulled up Skype and dialed a phone number in Chengdu, China. Zhang Li answered. For the first time, Robert saw the Chinese software pirate in person. He was pudgy with soft features, like someone who spent a lot of time in front of a computer. Basically the opposite of me, chiseled, ripped, very attractive. <laughs> they exchanged pleasantries. Lee wasn't using a translator, but he could mostly follow along. Robert got down to business. Mr. Lee, did you know that the software you're selling on Crack 99 usually sells for a much higher price? Lee was surprised, but that wasn't a surprise. Most of the companies that made Crack 99 stolen software kept their prices a secret to maintain their competitive edge. So I have a business proposition. I know many customers who would pay top dollar for the software you sell on Crack 99. I'd like to sell it to them for a higher price. For example, I can sell Cordis 2 for $5,000. In such a case, we would give you 50% kickback. That means you'll get $2,500. That's fine, that's fine, but let me ask you a question. It's that I will keep it confidential. How will that be done? That's not a problem. Each sale will be private. But Lee didn't seem satisfied. I need to ask you another question. What's going to happen when there are differences in price? That means my price will be different from the price you guys have given the customer. Will he find out my price is cheaper than what you guys have given him? 
Indeed, why would Robert's American customers want to pay a higher price for software when they could buy it on Crack99 for much cheaper? It was a reasonable question, and it revealed the flaw in the investigator's plan. Robert had an answer ready. Because they prefer to buy through a trusted dealer, like me. Again, you'll be getting 50% of the proceeds. The money was just too good to resist. Lee agreed to go into business with Robert. This was all part of a larger strategy. Robert wanted to become one of Zhang Li's biggest customers and eventually his business partner, hopefully important enough for Zhang Li to agree to meet in person. After the Skype call, they offered to purchase 15 software programs from Zhang Li, which they could then sell to their American buyers. Zhang Li valued the list at $1,630, but he knocked off about $150 for a discount. A good sign. Zhang Li wanted to keep his customers happy. The agents wired the money, and soon they had yet another batch of stolen software. This was enough for Hall to secure an indictment. Zhang Li seemed more and more eager to do business. Next, he offered to provide Robert with counterfeit packaging. Robert could sell the software on CDs in what looked like authentic packaging material. This way, the customers would be less likely to connect the stolen software to Crack99. He'd ask for $1,500, but agreed to $1,350. The agents agreed. But before they could send the money, Zhang Li sent another email. More pleasant surprises. I can gather some valuable information, 20 gigabytes. If you're interested, cost $3,000. This is confidential and do not have to sell to other customers, only for you. What the hell was Zhang Li up to? On another Skype call, Zhang Li explained, he'd come into possession of 20 gigabytes of proprietary data from an American defense contractor. The company developed engineering modeling software for the U.S. military. But this wasn't software. This was internal company data. This was yet another clue. Zhang Li was either a hacker or he had access to hackers. This also gave credence to the idea that Zhang Li might be involved with the Chinese government. Maybe a government hacker, maybe a civilian hacker who had contracted for the government. Internal data from a defense contractor was exactly the sort of thing the Chinese government had stolen hundreds of times before. The agents wired Zhang Li $4,350 for the packaging and the data. But this time, Zhang Li didn't send the materials. Had Zhang Li just taken the money and run? Was their lengthy, expensive investigation all for nothing? Months went by. Robert and Zhang Li continued messaging. Robert wanted to know why their purchases hadn't shown up. Li said he was worried that shipping them internationally would raise suspicion. Robert suggested that he and Lee meet in person. At first, Lee didn't think this was necessary, but Robert was persistent. The meeting had to be at a location where Robert and the agents could arrest Lee. Obviously, China wasn't an option. They considered the Philippines or Thailand, but they weren't certain that the Philippines would agree to extradite Lee. As for Thailand, the country recently refused to extradite the Russian arms dealer Victor Bout who, among other things, was accused of conspiring to kill American citizens and selling weapons to the Colombian terrorist group FARC. No guarantee there, either. Hall was looking at a map of the South Pacific when he finally landed on it. Saipan. It's an island of 44 square miles. Hall was familiar with it. In 1944, his father was one of the 71,000 Marines who landed on Saipan to take it from the Japanese. Brutal fighting lasted three weeks. 
When it was clear the battle was lost, Hall's father watched in horror as thousands of Japanese soldiers and civilians jumped to their deaths to avoid capture. Today, Saipan is an American territory, which meant it was within Hull's jurisdiction. But most importantly, Chinese nationals didn't need a visa to travel to the island. By April of 2011, Zhang Li still hadn't sent the materials. He was worried about sending them through the mail. He thought it was safer to hand it over in person. So he agreed to meet in Saipan. There was just one catch. Robert had to pay for Zhang Li's travel as well as for his family's travel. It seemed strange that Zhang Li would bring his family to an illegal business meeting, and it seemed to undermine the idea that Zhang Li was a master spy or government hacker. But Robert didn't ask questions. The U.S. government wired Zhang Li another $5,000, and the meeting was set for June. So Robert, Hall, and their team traveled to Saipan in June, having no idea if Zhang Li would actually show up, or if he did, what would happen. Again, it was entirely possible that Zhang Li had ties to Chinese intelligence. They arrived a few days early and set up shop at their hotel, where they planned for the upcoming meeting with Zhang Li. The agents were staying at the Fiesta Hotel. Their tech team wired Robert's hotel room for sound and video. Zhang Li, his mother-in-law, and his five-year-old son arrived early in the morning of June 5, 2011. Cullen was waiting in the airport's customs area. He alerted the team who was waiting in the parking lot. The agents followed Lee and his family to their hotel, the Saipan World Resort. The Lees arrived around sunrise. Hall assumed they would go to sleep after their long flight, but not so. The agents were surprised to see Lee emerge from the hotel, get into a rented jeep, and drive off. Where was he going? The team took after them, but tailing someone on a small island is difficult without giving yourself away. Eventually, Cullen and team gave up and returned to the hotel. Then, Robert sent Lee an email. Are you in Saipan? I'm at the Fiesta Hotel, room 871. Please meet at 9 a.m. tomorrow morning. Call my cell phone when arriving. No response. Nothing to do but wait. Hall and his team considered the possibilities. Was Lee meeting with his handler from Chinese intelligence? Had Lee spotted the Americans? Or was he just being a businessman, trying to control the terms of the meeting? Hours later, Robert finally received a brief reply from Lee. Okay, I see. And the meeting was set. The next morning, Robert was preparing to receive Lee at his hotel when he got another call from Lee. Can you pick me up? Strange, they knew Lee had a Jeep. Why did he need a ride? Not wanting to scare Lee off, they agreed. Their tech agent Brian switched off all the recording devices in Robert's room to save batteries. Robert drove to Lee's hotel with another agent a female investigator who spoke Mandarin. There, they got another surprise. Lee was waiting with his mother-in-law and son, who was wearing a swimsuit and pool floaties. My son would like to go swimming. Your hotel has a nicer pool, so can I bring him along? My mother-in-law will watch him. Robert thought on his feet. Uh, non-guests can't use the pool. I saw some kids get kicked out of the pool yesterday. Satisfied, Lee bid his family goodbye got in the car, and rode back to the Fiesta Hotel with Robert and his interpreter. There, Brian the tech guy slipped into room 871 and began turning on all of the equipment to record the meeting. But nobody thought to tell Brian that Robert, Lee, and the interpreter were already back in the hotel. Brian heard the hotel room door open and saw the trio enter. A former Special Forces operator, Brian didn't panic. He tiptoed into the bathroom, shut the door behind him, and emailed the team. Do not shit yourself, but I'm still in the room. 
all's well, we start the recording. They relayed the message to Robert. He prayed Lee wouldn't have to go to the bathroom. To kick things off, Robert and Lee exchanged gifts. Lee brought an assortment of Chinese foods for his new American friend to try, like tea and seasoned tofu. There was also chocolate, but that was for Lee's son. With a sinking feeling, Robert realized Lee's son would not be getting that chocolate. Then, Lee brought out his wares. First, the counterfeit packaging materials they could use to sell some 15 software programs they'd recently purchased. Then, there were the 20 gigabytes of incriminating data spread across several disks. So now they had him on tape committing a crime. Now, they needed to get him to admit to as much incriminating behavior as they could. Lee gave them tips on how to smuggle the contraband back to the States, split it up, and have multiple people carry it. If asked, they can just say it was study materials. He also gave them advice on how to sell his software without getting caught. Only sell to trusted, reliable customers. The products are pretty, um, well, like confidential, he said. Don't go tell other people. Then Lee promised he could get Robert more software and more counterfeit packaging material. This interested Robert. He pressed Lee on the point. Do you have to ask someone else for this software? Some of them, yes. Some of them, no. Lee was being vague. At this point, the Mandarin interpreter said she had to use the bathroom. Robert tensed. Would she stumble upon the tech agent? Thankfully, the hotel room had two bathrooms, and she picked the unoccupied one. But before she entered, she turned back to Lee. There's another restroom if you need to use it. But Lee shook his head. When she returned, Lee turned to Robert. Do you have anything scheduled after this? We can go and hang out together. Robert decided he'd extracted as much as he could out of Lee. So he uttered the code phrase, Our business in Saipan is concluded. The team burst into the room in body armor, guns drawn, followed by several more Homeland Security agents. On the ground, now! A terrified Lee complied. Cullen handcuffed him. They now had Zhang Li in custody, but their journey was far from over. Paul and his agents had to get Lee back to the United States without causing a diplomatic incident with China. Once they did, they'd still have to prove their case against Lee, and there was no guarantee he'd cooperate. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to an attorney. Zhang Li listened as the Mandarin interpreter relayed all of this to him. It was a few minutes later, and he was sitting across the table from Cullen. Cullen doubted that Zhang Li understood exactly what he was saying. The American legal system is entirely different than China's. Lee didn't ask for his lawyer, and he agreed to be questioned. He also agreed to let agents search his room at the Saipan World Resort. Cullen handled the questioning. Lee answered via interpreter. Tell us about yourself. My name is Zhang Li. I live in Chengdu with my wife Chen Yan, plus my mother-in-law and son. We also have another baby on the way. Do you operate the website Crack99? Yes. Is Chun Yan involved in the site? She only handles the money. Does she have access to the email account china9981 at gmail.com? Only I do. Finally, Colin asked the big question. Where do you get your software? I find the software online. How? Search engines. Hackers post this stuff on forums all the time but nobody knows where to find them or how to install them. That's why I created Crack99. Where are these forums? Mostly China and Russia. So you don't hack yourself? No. Do you have access to the hackers though? No, 
Cullen knew this wasn't true. While perusing the China 9981 inbox, Cullen had seen Lee's conversations with hackers. I only have a couple more questions, Mr. Lee. If I might ask, why did you use a Gmail account? Surely you knew Gmail was an American company. I needed an email that was recognizable and universal. My customers are all over the world. People don't trust Chinese email addresses. I see. And what were you doing yesterday when you were driving around the island? Sightseeing? So Zhang Li was trying to squeeze a vacation into his business trip. Cullen decided that was enough questioning for the day. Meanwhile, Hall and his team of agents went to search Li's hotel room, where Li's mother-in-law and son were waiting. She wasn't surprised to hear that her son-in-law was arrested. She only had one question for the agents. What about my airline ticket? Can we still fly home? They assured her that would not be a problem. Hall didn't want to search the hotel room in front of Lee's kid, so he took him to the resort's lobby and bought him an ice cream cone. Upstairs, the agents found copies of everything Lee had given Robert, plus other stolen software. Next, the agents brought Lee to the Homeland Security office. It had just a single jail cell where they'd keep Lee overnight. They offered to get him Chinese food, but he declined. They got McDonald's, and he refused that too. For Lee, the shock of the arrest had worn off, and the gravity of the situation sunk in. Had it been a good idea to tell the agents too much about his business? Would he ever see his wife and son again? Could he even face them? That night, Hall braced for a response from the Chinese government, an outraged statement from the president or a government minister demanding Zhang Li's release. Then, threats to undo any diplomatic goodwill between China and the U.S., followed by pressure from his government to drop the case. The faster he could get Zhang Li off Saipan, the better. The next morning, it was time for Li's judicial hearing. As a foreign national, Li was entitled to both a detention hearing and a removal hearing, both of which could drag the process out for weeks. Meanwhile, the Chinese government could easily protest Li's arrest. At the hearing, Li finally got a lawyer, a local public defender. Li waived his right to the hearings. Hall hoped Li would be willing to give a detailed statement on the flight home to Delaware, but Li's lawyer wouldn't agree, wanting to leave Li's options open. One wonders what would have happened if Lee had spoken to his lawyer before his questioning. Lee's lawyer told him not to answer any questions, so Hall and company couldn't question him. By now, it was time to fly home. Lee spent most of the flight in silence, although he did ask one question. Where going? Delaware. Lee looked confused. It's a state. Lee still looked confused. Cullen quickly drew a map of the United States and showed it to Lee, indicating where Delaware is. I want to talk. Not until we get to Delaware. What is Delaware? Cullen showed Lee the map again, while Hall gave Lee a quick lecture on federalism in the 50 United States. I want to talk. Not till we're in Delaware. They spent the rest of the flight in silence. After a brief stopover in Honolulu, they continued to Delaware. Lee continued to refuse food. They'd even gone to Philadelphia's Chinatown and purchased food from Lee's home Sichuan province, but he had no appetite. They also offered to let him call his wife and son back in Chengdu, but he refused. In Delaware, Hall and his team of lawyers negotiated with Lee, who now had a federally appointed attorney. Overall, Lee was facing up to 100 years in jail time. Hall offered him a deal to plead guilty in exchange for a reduced sentence, provided he cooperated. Lee agreed. But on the day of his plea hearing, Lee had a change of heart. An angry, defiant Lee fired his lawyer and retained the services of an expensive New York lawyer. To Hall, this was suspicious and pointed to the possible involvement of the Chinese government. But again, he had no proof. 
Lee was no longer interested in a deal, his new lawyer made Hall an offer. The U.S. government would drop all charges against Lee, and in exchange, Lee would leave the country and never return. Hall declined. Instead, he upped the ante by issuing a superseding indictment. The previous indictment covered Lee's illegal activity up until November of 2010. The new one covered Lee's illegal activity from then until Lee's arrest in June 2011. Finally, Lee agreed to plead guilty. Now, all that was left to do was sentence him. In an interview with a probation officer, Lee tried to put his actions in context. In China, it was culturally acceptable to hack American and other Western companies and steal their software, not just for military hackers or government contractors, but for everyday civilian hackers, or even hacker-adjacent people like Lee. Overall, he estimated that there were 10 million people in China doing illegal things with software, and the Chinese government looked the other way. The judge was unpersuaded, so at a sentencing hearing, Lee tried a different tactic. I didn't have an evil intention to violate the law in the United States, he said. All I hope is to be able to return to China to reunite with my family. I believe if I have to stay a long time in jail in the United States, my family will fall apart. I will only see a broken family. My wife and kids, they will be hurt. I'm not a bad person. Lee's lawyer asked for time served, two years. The judge gave him 12. Hall and his team had done their jobs. The software pirate was behind bars. This was the biggest successful cyber copyright infringement case ever. But there was still more to do. After all, Lee had dozens of customers, and there was still more questions to answer. Like how exactly did Zhang Li get his software? Around sunrise, Ronald Scott Best pulled into the parking lot at his workplace, MPD, where he was employed as a chief scientist. About that name, he spells it with a W, literally W-R-O-N-A-L-D. To Ronald, this is the correct way to spell the name Ronald, and everyone else is wrong. Ronald liked to get to the office early. MPD Inc. was a defense contractor. Among other things, MPD developed radar technology and other electronics for military helicopters. These included the U.S. military's Black Hawk attack helicopter and Marine One, the helicopter that transports the President of the United States. Ronald himself had worked on redesigning the cathode for the Black Hawk. He'd also worked on the company's Magnetron line of products, on components for Patriot missiles, and even on a breathalyzer equipment for law enforcement. Just as Ronald settled into his desk with a cup of coffee, there was a knock at the door. Then the door opened. It was the facilities manager, along with several federal agents and Kentucky police officers. At the front of the group was Homeland Security investigator Brendan Cullen. Do you know why we're here, Mr. Best? I do. We also have a search warrant for your home. Do you want to accompany us? I would. Cullen's team confiscated everything from Ronald's office. Then, everyone traveled to Ronald's home. There, they seized four computers, four external hard drives, a server, a flash drive, and 179 CDs and DVDs. On them, investigators discovered that Ronald had cracked software programs purchased from Crack99, which would have been worth $500,000 if he'd paid full price for them. Ronald explained that he only used the products for his job. He just used them to work on projects from home. But Colin and his team knew all of this. They'd already discovered Ronald's email account, mrpeabody.1 at gmail.com. 
There, they discovered more than 250 messages between Ronald and Zhang Li. Not only was he an enthusiastic customer, he also provided Li with instruction manuals for how to install the software for free. On top of that, Ronald was found to have discussions with a Russian software cracker. Thanks to his relationship, Ronald was able to help Zhang Li obtain latest versions of his many software products. Like Li, Ronald Best tried to claim that he was just one among many people who purchased crack software and that he only did it for work-related reasons. He got one year in prison. Up next was Cosburn Wetterburn. He was an electrical engineer for NASA. He purchased 12 programs from Zhang Li with a retail value of a million bucks. Like Best, he only used them for his job. Thanks to his cooperation with the government, he was sentenced to probation. Altogether, the investigation into Crack 99 led to just three arrests. But what about Zhang Li's assertion that pirating software is not just socially acceptable in China, but common? It wasn't far off. In 2012, the Business Software Alliance reported that 77% of software used in China the previous year was stolen. That added up to $9 billion in lost sales. As of 2021, China was still the world leader in software piracy. Given that China is one of the most authoritarian countries in the world, one that heavily monitors its internet, there's no way China is unaware of Crack99's existence and the software on it. Zhang Li never did confirm whether he had direct ties to the Chinese government, but he did have contacts with Chinese hackers, and it's likely they had some sort of relationship with it. As we've seen before, the Chinese government condones cybercrime committed by hackers as long as it doesn't harm Chinese interests. In fact, when considered in context, China's hands-off approach makes too much sense. Since 1999, Chinese government has been actively encouraging its soldiers and its civilians to steal as much technology as possible to help their country catch up. Over these past three episodes, we've covered this theft in detail. Now the question is, what is China going to do with all this new technology? In the next episode, China's unrestricted cyber warfare accelerates China's development into a technological superpower. I'm Keith Corneluk, and you're listening to Modem Mischief. Thanks for listening to Modem Mischief. Don't forget to hit that subscribe or follow button in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. This show is an independent production and is wholly supported by you, our listeners. And the best way to support the show is to share it. And another way to support us is on Patreon or a paid subscription on Apple Podcasts. For as little as five bucks a month, you'll receive an ad-free version of the show, plus bonus episodes exclusive to subscribers. Modem Mischief is brought to you by Mad Dragon Productions and is created, produced, and hosted by me, Keith Corneluk. This episode is written and researched by Jim Rowley. Edited, mixed, and mastered by Greg Bernhard, a.k.a. Crack is what you'll have to smoke to get with him. The theme song You Are Digital is composed by Computer Bandit. Sources for this episode are available on our website at modemmischief.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, at Modem Mischief, and slide into our DMs. Thanks for listening. <laughs>